All right, we're turning to John chapter 6 this morning together. We're looking at the first 15 verses. I have uh, three volunteers to read five verses each. Say verse 1 through 5. Nate? Yes, you want to take the second, uh, 6 through 10, and then someone at 11 through 15. Yeah, somebody else. Yes, thank you, Francis. All right, Nate, start us off. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Great, thank you. All right, so brief recap, chapter 5. What we looked at last, or what you looked at last together, in chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem. Remember, he healed the man on the Sabbath. Then he met that man later on in the temple. And we know the Jews, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, were seeking all the more to kill him uh, because they claimed that he was breaking the Sabbath. But not only that, even more so, that he was calling God his own father making himself equal with God. And so in chapter 5, we see that Jesus, as he shows such mercy and kindness to this man on the Sabbath, heals him as the one who is Lord of the Sabbath, showing mercy and kindness, compassion on the Sabbath in saving and healing this man. Uh, Those who are watching, particularly among the Jews, the Pharisees, are angry because he's broken the Sabbath in their minds, which is their legalism, their false view of the Sabbath. But even more, they're angry because he's claiming that he is equal with God, that God is his father, that he is the son of God, and so that he is God the son. And Jesus went on in chapter 5 to speak of his own authority as God the son, and really laid out how the scriptures, the whole Old Testament, pointed forward to Jesus as God the son. Verse 39, he said, The scriptures bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe in me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
And so throughout chapter five, Jesus is saying, look at the scriptures. Moses spoke about me. I am the one who is to come. Well, as we look at chapter six, we're going to break it down into three parts. Some of you are taking notes. First is verses one through four, which is the place and time of this miracle. And then secondly, got to get to my headings here. Um, We've got the miracle itself, which is verses five through 13. So the place and time, verses one through four, the miracle itself, verses five through 13, and then the response of the people in verses 14 and 15. All right, so first of all, the place and time. Where is this taking place? Jesus has been in Jerusalem, Judea. Uh, The apostle John uh, now moves us, sort of fast forwards us to Jesus now being in Galilee. So if you read the other Gospels, there will be some more in between. Uh, Other accounts, John focuses very briefly on Jesus' Galilean ministry. The Gospel of John focuses much more extensively, as you guys will see in coming weeks, on Jesus' return to Jerusalem and everything, his teaching, everything that leads up to his suffering, death, and resurrection. And so this is one of the windows into the Galilean ministry. And John highlights this miracle because of its great significance. It's in all four Gospels. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 6, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, If you think of the map of Israel, I don't know if these work, Uh, we've got the Mediterranean, we've got uh, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, and then way up here is the Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, down here. And so Jesus is traveling north, And then up here, you've got cities like Bethsaida, uh, Capernaum's up here. Out here would be, more in this direction, is Nazareth. And so all of this, this whole region up here, is all called Galilee. And this, of course, is the Sea of Galilee. And so we compare with the other Gospels, what's happening right now? Well, Jesus has traveled up to this area where, of course, he had come from initially, from Nazareth. Uh, this area is a Jewish area. On this side, you've got more Gentiles. On this side of the Sea of Galilee, it's like the demoniac that he comes to heal in the Gospels. It's on the far side, the Capitalist would be out on this side. And right now, what we're reading about Jesus has been in the area of Capernaum, Bethsaida, uh, Chorazin is another one that we mentioned uh, around here. But Jesus is sort of on this area of the Sea of Galilee, traveling along uh, the coastal areas. And he's gone to the other side, really along the coast, sailing uh, to the other side of the sea, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. There's a Roman ruler at this time. It was also named after him. And so Jesus is now in this northern area, uh, the west side, more Jewish in population, the east side having greater numbers of Gentiles. And our Lord has been preaching in this area. Uh, He's been healing the sick. And we see in verse 2, a large crowd was following him. Why are they following him? Because they see the signs that he was doing on the sick. 
And so these people have come because they've heard. Uh, Many of them have now seen what Jesus is able to do. Of course, you have to think from our vantage, we understand who Jesus is. We have the scriptures. We've been taught this. He's God the Son in our nature. And so no surprise that he can work mighty miracles. He's the one who created everything. By whom all things were created, as it says in Colossians. Uh, He is the Lord of glory in our nature, uh, in our humanity. Uh, But for many of the people here who don't understand the scriptures, they're like, wow, this this is incredible. Who is this man that can do these things? Uh, who is he? What, what is, it's just amazing what he's doing. So this large crowd is following him. They see the signs that he's doing on, on the sick. They see that he's able to heal people uh, who have major physical problems, people who are in spiritual distress, uh, deeply bound in sin, even under demonic influences. He's able to deliver them. Not only is he able to do it, but he's willing to do it. Uh, they, they see his kindness. They see that he's different than other men. He's marked by the holiness and the goodness. Uh, can you imagine the crowds would come today, news reporters that would come, uh, if, if someone would be able to go through Greenville Memorial <coughs> Hospital, through the intensive care unit, the cancer ward, the cardiac ward, and just go through, and people would be healed instantly. Uh, that would be all over the news. It would be in national media. It would, it would shock and amaze people. Now, this is what Jesus was doing in Israel as he did these physical healings. So no wonder a large crowd is following him. Uh, he's able to do what no one else can do. Uh, but as these crowds come, and they're large crowds, we'll see, uh, why are they coming to him? It doesn't necessarily mean that they're all coming to Jesus because they want salvation. Because they know that they're sinners and they know their sins uh, have separated them from God and they desire to be forgiven and delivered and have a new life uh, spiritually. But it certainly tells us a lot about our Lord, doesn't it? Uh, We see Jesus doing these things in his word that he's given to us. And he's given us these records because he wants us to know things about himself. One of the things we see here is he cares for his people, not only spiritually, but also physically. He cares for us in our whole being, body and soul. And he's the savior of his people, both body and soul. And so God does care uh, about the physical sufferings we have in life. He cares about the emotional and spiritual sufferings we have in life. He cares about our whole being. And as our Savior, uh, he's not only the one who justifies us, cleanses us from our sin, he also sanctifies us. But the day is coming as well that he's going to perfect our bodies. He's going to raise them from the dead. Even death is not going to be able to hold us. Uh, as his children. He has sovereign power over all his creation. Well, in verse 3 we read, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. It seems from the accounts we have in the Gospels that he's been doing a lot of ministry in these uh, seaside towns. And now he's 
gone over this way. There's some larger mountains along the coast on this side. <coughs> Big slopes going up. And uh, he and the disciples have gone up one of these slopes along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Jesus sort of retreated for some rest and refreshment. Can you imagine uh, the intensity if you always had just everywhere you went, crowds of people gathering around you, uh, wanting to talk to you, wanting to be healed by you, wanting to be helped by you. Now, Jesus was a man with a nature like ours, ours, and no doubt he was weary at times. And his disciples, okay, who are coming along, there'd be a lot of pressure with all of this. Now, John also gives us a very important brief note on the timing of all of this. Verse 4. The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Can anybody give a, I'll just throw out a question here. Anybody give a quick, short recap. What is the Passover? Go ahead. Nate. The celebration. Remembering uh, from in Egypt when uh, the people of uh, Israel put blood over their doors so that the Angel of death would pass over them. Right. And that deliverance from the Egyptians. Right. Yeah, it's that great deliverance. God redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt. He saves them. And there's that feast and great final judgment that God brings upon Egypt. The killing of the firstborn would have happened to everybody in Israel as well if they had not put the blood on their doorposts. That little lamb in each household that is sacrificed. And so there's this great celebration that's about to happen among all these people that live in this whole area that are Jewish. They're going to remember the Passover again. And again, if they understood that biblically and were thinking through it biblically, they would think of what Abraham said to Isaac, the Lord will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. This whole pattern of sacrifice in the Old Testament pointing to God as Savior, God as Redeemer, God is a provider of what his people need for salvation, for life, for eternity. But how do the people at this time think about the Passover? Well, a number of commentators, D.A. Carson's one of them, notes that by this point, a lot of the people sort of thought of the Passover more like Fourth of July. Why would they think of it in that way? Well, they were delivered from Egypt, from political oppression from slavery. And at this point in time, during Jesus' ministry, they're under Roman rule, and the Jews hate that. And one of the things that they're thinking about often with the Passover at this time was, well, this is God created us as a nation. Boy, we want freedom. We want freedom from Gentile Roman rule. And so, uh, many of those, even who are celebrating the Passover, have kind of lost sight of what it really means. Uh, they're thinking about it more politically and socially. Well, now verses 5 through 13, the miracle itself. In verses 5 through 7, we read, Lifting up his eyes then, seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Well, the crowd coming up to the mountain, uh, coming up the mountain to them is large. It seems, uh, we see this often in Jesus' ministry, it's just, it's almost impossible to get away from the crowds. 
people will talk to each other. You know, maybe some kid, somebody saw where Jesus and the disciples went. And word gets around and people start to throng to come again to him. And uh, as we read on these verses, we see that the men of this crowd are 5,000 in number. And you think 5,000 men, and then there are probably women alongside and some children. So uh, simple math, it's like if there's just one woman and one child for every man, it'd be at least 15,000 people. Uh, maybe more than that. So a very large crowd is gathering. Uh, to give a sense, I, I looked at the numbers. Uh, Fleur Field, baseball field right over here. When it's uh, packed out, its largest attendance was 7,800 people. So the crowd is uh, easily twice, maybe three or four times the size of a packed out baseball night. Well, as this crowd then begins to approach, these people are coming up the mountainside. Jesus sees them coming. The disciples see them coming. And this is the context where Jesus says this to Philip. Now, Philip was from this town of Bethsaida, not far from where they are on the mountain. And so if there's anybody among the disciples who would know where to get food, uh, the disciple who knows where the uh, early New Testament grocery stores are and Bethsaida, you know, the bakeries, all that kind of stuff. It's Philip. And Jesus is really opening his eyes, the disciples' eyes, to the profound greatness of the need that is before them as he asks these questions. You see that. Verse 6, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So where are we going to buy bread? so that these people can eat. Uh, Jesus' question emphasized the reality of the situation in front of them. Jesus knows it's humanly impossible, but he wants it to be impressed on the disciples. This is humanly impossible. He doesn't want them to lose sight of that. Uh, and again, if anybody could think of a solution, it'd probably be Philip. But there is no solution that uh, they can they can reach. Uh, it also displays Jesus' great compassion. Uh, he knows the needs of these people in the crowd. He also knows his disciples' need to understand who he is and what his mission is. And so that's why Jesus tests Philip with this question. Well, what's Philip's response? Uh, William, could you read for us verse 7? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Thank you. So 200 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer at this time. So this is two-thirds of a year's income. And what's the background of the disciples, by and large? They're common laborers, right? Fishermen, uh, laborers, we know, tax collector in the midst and a few others. Uh, who maybe had higher paying jobs. Jesus, what's his background? His father was a carpenter, stone worker, uh, also a laboring background. He grew up in the household of Joseph and Mary. And so from Philip's vantage, as he answers this question, there is just no way they can afford to feed these people. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do the same today either. 
I mean, who of us could feed a crowd of 15,000 people? Uh, or more than that. We wouldn't be able to afford to do it. Well, in verse 8, we see one of the other disciples joining into the conversation. Uh, he jumps in, uh, it seems, with some eagerness and readiness. Would somebody read verses 8 and 9? Quick volunteer. Someone... Someone raise your hand. If not, Timothy. I will volunteer you. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Great, thank you. Well, Andrew's response contains some real encouragement in it. As a disciple, Andrew, uh, it seems his heart is moved. He's looking around. He's Simon Peter's brother. He sees the need. He wants to try to help. He's trying. His brain is sort of running. He's like, what can we do? What can we do? Wait, look right here. Here's a kid. Hey, you know, would you mind sharing these with us if, you, if we need them? Uh, here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. Uh, he wants to help. He wants to serve the Lord. He's heard Jesus' question. And he's immediately trying to find a solution. But it's not much. He realizes, and even as he tells the Lord about it, he ends with, but what are they for so many? Uh, you know, it's, it's basic food, barley loaves and fish. It'd be good food for feeding people. Uh, but what are five loaves and two fish for thousands of people? Well, both Philip and Andrew, despite the fact that they've seen Jesus perform miracles. They have seen Jesus perform quite a number of miracles by this time. They've seen his power displayed in healing people out of uh, impossible illnesses that would be impossible to heal at that time, and even today. They conclude there is no solution for this. Uh, and they, they don't even... They look to Jesus to solve this. It just like it's, it seems impossible. What can we do? Well, turn with me to verses 10 through 13. We read there, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. That's interesting. Why would the apostle include these details? There's a lot of grass in this area. I think in the Gospel of Mark, he actually mentioned it's green grass uh, in one of these occasions. Well, I think it's just, as John, the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing these things down afterwards, he remembers this detail. And again, John, when he's writing the gospel, he, he knows Christ fully. He knows that he's the one by whom all things are created. He knows that Jesus is a great provider. Uh, maybe he's thinking of Jesus now in light of Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord leading his people through green pastures and beside still waters. And here we have the provision of grass to sit on. A lot of these mountains are rocky, dusty, dirty. But in this particular area, there's a lot of grass. It's a great place to sit down. Jesus kindly calls on the people to be seated. Uh, this is, we know from the other gospels, this is late in the day. Uh, these people have come and followed and then come and followed again. Uh, later on here in the day as this great crowd gathers again. And so Jesus is giving them rest. He's having them be seated. He's getting them ready for what he's about to do. 
Then we read in verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. We're actually going to look through a number of things here, 11 through 13, so I'll read the rest as well. Uh, He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Let's look at a few things here from these verses 10 through 13. First, again, Jesus' compassionate care for the crowd. And again, why does God have this in his word for us? Because he wants us to know who he is right now. He's exactly the same right now in heavenly glory. He has the same character. He has the same care for his people, for us. And again, in his kindness, they all have a good place to sit. It's a grassy area. Uh, The people willingly obey the call to be seated. Uh, There's this anticipation in the crowd. Uh, Maybe they're wondering, what is he going to do? He's been teaching us. We've seen him heal people. A sense that the Lord's about to do something significant once again. Then in verse 11, we see that Jesus takes these loaves and he gives thanks. He gives thanks to God the Father for his provision. John Calvin in his commentary says this, Christ has more than once instructed us by his example that whenever we take food, we should begin with prayer. And it's true. If Jesus, who's God the Son, every time we see him uh, about to begin a meal, about to feed his people, he prays. He gives thanks to the Father. He's God the Son. Giving thanks to the Father, asking the Father for his blessing. Calvin says this is a pattern. and I think uh, many of y'all... Uh, you know, here at church, in your, in your home lives, it's probably a common pattern, isn't it? Praying before a meal. It's a good thing. Uh, it can be easy for us to forget, but I think it's a great thing to do. You know, we go out somewhere, we're eating with friends, take our time to thank God at the beginning of the meal and be a witness to other people. When you're by yourself, maybe at work or something like that, pause to give thanks to God. And uh, why does Jesus give us this example? Because God, he's reminding everybody that God is a provider of every good gift. It's only appropriate to thank him for it. He's the one who's given it to us and ask for his blessing on it. Praying before our meals helps us stay spiritually oriented to the Lord through our day. Times we have meals, they're kind of like pillars in the day. Generally, we don't miss a meal. We feel it if we do. Uh, but you've got these pillars in your day, uh, regular habits of life. And when we combine with those regular habits of life, coming to God, coming to Him in prayer, communing with Him, that builds good patterns spiritually. And it gives us the right view of what we're receiving, uh, the thankful spirit. But there are other aspects to this language in verse 11. You know, it's strikingly similar to what we will read in all four of the Gospels about the final Passover. Jesus' ministry, there's several Passovers that take place during these years. 
uh, that he, we read him participating in. But of course, the final Passover meal is what? It's the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I don't know how many of you were in the early morning service this morning, but the Lord's Supper was celebrated. And we know from Luke 22, uh, from what the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, that Jesus, when he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Uh, What's happening here at this great miracle that Jesus is about to do As he begins by taking this bread, giving thanks, and breaking it, we see this pattern happening already before the Lord's Supper. It's like I said, sort of like a a little prophecy of what is to come. A reminder of who he is. Jesus is the Lord, our provider. Jesus is the Lord, our Savior and Redeemer. Think of the manna in the wilderness. God fed his people after the Passover as well, and the Lord's Supper soon to come. Well, what happens next? Jesus distributes the food. We also read here in verse 11. And I think this is uh, remarkable for us. It's instructive for us. Just like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus is the one who goes through the crowd, and his disciples may have helped him, but he is going, and he is carrying a basket with food, and he is passing it to the people. He's serving them. We have God the Son, the one who created the universe. you got this huge crowd of sinful, broken, messed up people, sinners like us, who have sinned against God in so many different ways. And Jesus, the King of glory in our nature, who's already stooped down so far from heavenly glory to be our Savior, is now going around and he's serving these people. He's compassionately, mercifully coming to them. Stooping in mercy and grace and love to feed sinners provide for them. And we read, he feeds them abundantly, doesn't he? Uh, He feeds them till they are all satisfied. I read uh, about a week and a half ago, this quote from somewhere about, I can't remember who wrote it, uh, but this quote saying, uh, the world is not big enough to satisfy the human heart. It's not. If uh, apart from God, you could have everything in this world, it would not satisfy you at the end of the day. Uh, You would be hollow at the end of the day. Why? Because our hearts are created for fellowship, relationship with God. There's nothing uh, that will fill us enough and satisfy us. And here we have this picture of Jesus He is the one who is able to satisfy, fully satisfy his people and is pictured in his feeding of them. They ate as much as they wanted. Uh, The apostle repeats this twice. When they had eaten their fill, there was leftover. Uh, There's leftovers. And when they started with such a tiny amount, not remotely enough uh, to feed themselves, 
The disciples go out and gather 12 baskets full, way more than they started with. Uh, these people, as they were sitting here, you would think they would think of things like in the Old Testament, Elijah and the widow, and how God provided this oil that wouldn't run out, this flour that wouldn't run out. Um, God is the provider. It's a beautiful display to them and to us of who Jesus is. And a good reminder, uh, these people came hungry. They didn't have the resources to deal with their own problems. The same is true for each of us. You and I, we do not have the resources within ourselves to deal with our own problems, with our own sin. We don't have the resources to deal with our own spiritual needs. And the fact is, we don't in ourselves have the resources to deal with any of our needs. Financial, educational, relational, whatever it is, we don't have that within ourselves. And we're fools to start thinking. Sometimes we do. That's why we really stress and get anxious very easily. Because we are trying to do things and maybe starting to cling on to things as though we need to be God. And that we need to sort everything out. And we try to do that first ourselves instead of first going to the Lord. The Lord who's a great provider. He delights to provide for his people. We can rest in him. One of the things we see here, Jesus is so compassionate, so gracious, He has everything that we need. Uh, He holds all of the future in his hands. He's the one who wrote all of our days in his book before there were any of them, Psalm 139. Uh, He knows all things with perfect wisdom. And so we can trust ourselves to him, and as anxiety, stresses, issues of life come up, yes, he calls us to deal with them and to navigate them, but resting in him, swinging out in faith in him, casting our cares on him. It's a great reminder of his gladness to do so. Someone want to quickly read, we're almost at time to wrap up here, but Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Chase, could I ask you to do that? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like angels. Great. So, again, as, as the, the people there, and again, we'll see that a lot of them don't get it yet. Uh, a lot of them are still hardened in sin, and they just want they just want the benefits, but they really don't want the Lord. They don't understand. They're still blinded in sin. But among them, there are those, some of the disciples and others, who are being awakened, who are starting to realize who Jesus is. We know Peter will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But as we read this, description of what Jesus has done, it should make us echo these words of Psalm 103. Oh Lord, I want to bless you. I don't want to forget all of your benefits, all of your goodness. You are the one who forgives all my iniquity. You are the one who heals my sicknesses and will ultimately in the resurrection. He's the one who redeems your life from the pit, who gives you steadfast love and mercy, 
who satisfies you with good. Every time we enjoy something that is good, that is a blessing. We should realize God is the one who is satisfying us with good things. Psalm 23, and that we mentioned earlier as well, uh, echoes the same uh, great truth. So familiar, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then verse five, uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So what's happening here is Jesus does this miracle of feeding these huge crowds. There is not only enough to satisfy, there is more than enough. Again, I want to really press this home for all of us. Uh, The only place you'll find that satisfaction is in God, in Christ. This world would try to persuade you there are all kinds of other ways that you're going to find real satisfaction, real pleasure, real joy. But it's only as we come to God, follow according to his word, receive his blessings and use his blessings in his way, oh, then our cups will overflow. We will have joy and gladness. Well, what's the response of the people? We need to wrap up here. Verses 14 and 15. How does the crowd, or at least the majority of it, respond to this gracious, powerful, miracle work by Jesus? Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Moses had prophesied that there would be this greater prophet who would come. And so there is some awareness here of what the Old Testament said. Uh, But when we come to the next verse, we're going to see that, well, they really lack an accurate awareness of what the Old Testament was saying about the coming prophet, priest, and king. Again, the crowd here, verse 15, uh, what do they want to do? They want to take Jesus by force and make him king. And so what's really running through many of their minds? Well, again, it's this Passover as 4th of July kind of mindset. Hey, This man can do incredible miracles. He's clearly powerful. He can feed us for free. Uh, He'd be a great king to get rid of Roman rule. Let's make him king. What could be better than this? But Jesus had no intention of becoming the political king, Palestine, at this time. That's not why he's here. He's got the son. He's come to go to the cross. He's come to die for sinners. He's come to do something far greater than rule some earthly kingdom or fight against some Romans. Oh, his kingdom is vastly greater. His purpose is cosmically greater than that. In some ways, it must have been disappointing for Jesus and for the disciples that are starting to be aware of things, that the crowds are so blind and deaf. But we know in the midst of this, Jesus was saving sinners. There were eyes being opened and hearts being opened to see that Jesus is the Savior. Let's pray that God would do the same increasingly in our own hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that you've given us. And we do pray that you would bless us, that we would rest in you more as the one who is the great Savior and provider for your people. Go with us as we go into worship. Bless us that we would have thankful hearts to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.